0: from history, and from the Word of God. Welcome to the Sabrook Meeting House, an audio production of Saybrook Ministries.
1: It is difficult to speak of King James, successor to Elizabeth I, with temperance. If not rising to the horrid eminence of the great butchers of the race, he is exhibited to us in historic portraiture as singularly a man without a virtue. Disgust shields him from wrath, and indignation expires in contempt. A compound of the pedant and the sensualist, the poltroon and the tyrant, he could mingle orgies of lust and wassail with the solemn farce of theological debate and at the close enlightened the unhappy wretch whom the royal logic could not illumine with the fires of his own burning. Saved from flagrant atrocities only by his cowardice, he was constantly prating of a despotism for which he lacked courage, and even coveted the reputation of vices for which he wanted manhood. A bigot from pedantry, and a tyrant from vanity, and a debauchee from emulation, arrogant and cruel towards the weak, yet exhibiting the most cringing and dastardly servility to those whom he feared, crouching before his favorites, overawed and buffeted by the profligate Buckingham, fawned on by obsequious prelates, with the arch-episcopal wit gift exclaiming, Your Majesty speaks by the express aid of the Holy Ghost, and a Bancroft falling on his knees and thanking God for having given England a king such as had not been since Christ's time with convocations and consistories hanging on his lips and echoing his words, glutting their ambition and bigotry by the most abject adulation, directing the resentment of the offended royal vanity against nonconformity, and ready on the altar of religious rancor to lay the civil and spiritual rights of Englishmen. Such a monarch, with such an environment, presents a picture from which history hastes in disgust to turn away. It is at the same time, with a feeling of shuddering and of humiliation, we reflect that the religious rites of our forefathers were at the arbitrament of such a mind, that vast interests of heroic Wise, devoted men were in such keeping. As we should anticipate from such a monarch and court, conformity was now enforced on new points, and in a more vexatious manner, and with more ruthlessness and rigor. Multitudes of the most learned and pious of the clergy of the English Church were soon silenced, or in prison or in exile. The press was under censorship and liberty of prophesying or preaching forbidden under the severest penalties and under the direction of the fanatical Whitgift and Bancroft and their satellites, the terrible machinery of the Star Chamber and High Commission and of illegal or subservient tribunals with Inquisitorial process and infamous punishments was plied with new energy throughout the realm of England. It was an hour of fearful peril for truth and liberty. But under this monarch, as under his predecessor, Puritanism saved the liberties of England. And honored be the men who in that hour of opprobrium and peril stood firm, faithful, found among the faithless, who in the pillory and the prison, in poverty and exile, at the stake, and on the rack and the scaffold, wore out the rage of civil and spiritual despotism and saved the liberties of Christian men to the English nation and to us, their children." Yes, though many shadows may be upon their virtues and many imperfections encompassed their action, honored be those true-hearted iron men to the world's end. But these acts of tyranny were not only heaping wrath against the day of wrath in the next age for both prelacy and monarchy but meanwhile had been producing disruption of the persecuting church. The bands, tightened beyond endurance, at length burst, and a body of separatists were driven off. The Puritans in general had thus far been merely a party within the Anglican church, and had for a long time contemplated not the formation of a new, but the reformation of the old ecclesiastical organization but a portion of them now felt themselves forced out of the church they had long loved believing a reform of it hopeless and thinking a persecuting or idolatrous church to exhibit unmistakable marks of defection if not apostasy they found neither in reason or the word of God any warrant for the supposition that Christ had through a fixed clerical succession, bound over his church to a corrupt and persecuting hierarchy. They believed the authority for the ministration of the word and ordinances was vested in no clerical order above the church, independent and self-perpetuating, but inherited in the body of the believers, and that this body had the right when they deemed that the safety of the church required it to resume this prerogative. Such a crisis, they believed, had arrived. And therefore, asking no Episcopal sanction, but deriving their authority immediately from the great head of the church and the great commission, they proceeded to organize themselves on what they regarded as the biblical model and on the apostolic principles of liberty, order, and faith. Congregations of this description began to be formed in the latter part of the reign of Elizabeth. In 1606, we find the elements of one of them persecuted and hunted down at length, attempting flight from their native land, but they were arrested and imprisoned. Again in a dark night and amid storm they sought the privilege of exile, but a sudden surprise by a troop of horse interrupted their embarkation, driving the men to the sea and carrying away captive their wives and children. At length, not being able to establish it as a crime by the laws of England for wives and children to follow their husbands and fathers, and constrained By public indignation at the meanness of the tyranny, the government let them go. Such was their exodus from their native shores. Solemn and fearful must have been that sundering of themselves from their home and from the past and that commitment to strange lands and an unknown future. But they and theirs belonged to God and his truth with them the spiritual was real and principle was supreme and absolute at its behest they cheerfully became pilgrims on the earth where it led they followed and saw in its direction the hand of God through the darkness and over the stormy wave a desert of weary years overhung with the shadows of sad exile and thick strewn with graves was before them in their flight from the house of bondage. Strange lands and men and the mysteries of the solemn ocean and the awful aspect of a new hemisphere lifting its brow above the stormy main, might have risen on the vision of the elder and the dream of the maiden." These lay between them and the termination of their wanderings on a savage and wintry shore. It would add interest and give life and the power of tears to the picture to fill it with details, but on these we cannot linger. Our limits forbid, and our aim is devoted rather to principles than men. Our purpose is accomplished in identifying the history of these men with great and precious principles. Nor need I linger here. The world knows their story by heart. In the light of subsequent results, everything connected with them has assumed historic interest. The story of their sojourn in Holland, first at Amsterdam and afterward at Leiden, of their blameless and beneficent lives, their patience, their affectionateness, their piety, whereof the savor long remained in the land of their exile, has often been told. And how still they ever sighed for a land where their children might not be aliens, or their mother tongue a strange speech and where they could organize a church and commonwealth on gospel principles and do something to further the kingdom of Christ in foreign parts. At length, after tedious and vexatious negotiations with the London Company, they effected the purchase of a tract for settlement in the New World, and having bought, on most oppressive terms two small, unseaworthy vessels, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, with no charter obtained, but only the informal promise of neglect from the Crown, they embarked at Delft Haven in September of 1620. Upon the scene of their embarkation, subsequent history has concentrated the world's gaze and its entire grouping of lives in focal, historic light. Vast and solemn destinies are seen thronging the hour. It seems as one of the narrows of the river of history, and it has the grandeur of the natural stream crowded through the cliffs of awful mountains. Art, eloquence, and song have delighted to hallow the scene. Not its moral sublimity only, but even the physical, remains painted on the world's mind. The very forms and faces of the actors live on canvas and in marble. Their features and words have become a part of general history. The soldier and saint and sage, the wife and the maiden, with faces turned in sternness or in tears or in meek resignation, to the receding old world and the fading forms they should behold no more, or gazing wistfully on the wild and impatient sea, these stand bodied forth by creative art over the rotunda of our capital, as they do to the eye of the muse of history over the temple of our republic. And the farewell words of their revered pastor, which may be considered as the letter of instruction to these missionaries of Christian truth and liberty to a new world, are still in the world's ear. They have passed to a symbol of modern civilization itself. For the artist or historian's pencil, the past presents no sublimer picture than that of the revered Robinson, bending in the eloquence of last words, and almost in the awfulness of prophetic vision over that memorable band, and uttering words since inscribed on the banner of progress over the march of modern civilization and Christianity. Worship not man, he said. Make Christ alone supreme. Expect progress in truth. Be ready to receive all truth. Be not servants of men, but the Lord's freemen. I charge you to this before God and his angels. To this your covenant with the great King of truth binds you. Bear this principle with you to the new world. We listen to such sentiments uttered in such a scene with a feeling of awe. We seem to hear announced the destined creed of a new era, a creed cast off, abhorred, and accursed from the old world, but destined, when its hour had come, to return again and receive the rule and worship of the future. Though the actors in that scene have long since passed, with the parting pang, the farewell accents, the fondly lingering look, and gentle holy tears, those words have not fallen to the ground. History has caught them up, and the spirit of the age claims them as its own. They are wrought into the primal creed and public law of humanity as a charter of enfranchisement and progress to the human mind. But on this scene we may not dwell, nor may we linger with the tedious, storm-vexed and oft-baffled voyage, of their being compelled to turn back and refit, the abandonment of the Mayflower by her consort, and the consequent sifting anew of the already select band of emigrants, of their late voyage beset with mystery and fear through strange and wintry seas, of their expedition destined to the mouth of the Hudson, being treacherously misdirected to the dreary climes of the north, and their final anchorage, weary of wind and wave, off the ice-bound rocks of Plymouth. Of these I need not speak, nor of their exploring expedition, piercing the solitudes of those melancholy wilds, and the pilgrims' first Sabbath in the new world, how, with coats stiffened like iron mail by the sleet and the spray that froze as it fell, they kept holy time under the majestic oak or pine, through which went up the awe-filled voice of prayer, or the solemn psalm blended with the roar of the wintry storm or the organ tone of ocean. Their final debarkation, December 22, 1620, was in keeping with their voyage and seemed as the crowning trial of their faith. It seemed as if nature resented the bold attempt to penetrate her solitudes. The new world frowned them off. The heavens, the sea and the breakers hideous with cold and death and the sad frozen cliffs forbade their landing and no loved face smiled or friendly hand beckoned through the storm. No charm of home or of civilized habitancy welcomed them to these desolate shores. It was a land of desolations and the shadow of death. But God was their king, and nature was his minister. He had opened their way through the mighty waters, and he was with them now, as they looked to the land and beheld darkness and sorrow. And there was darkness in the heavens thereof. But they were not dismayed. With strong arms and stout hearts, They bore their delicate wives and maidens and their little ones through the freezing spray. But the deadly consumption, destined in after ages to waste the strong and beautiful in those lands, was long the sad memorial of that bitter day. Thus the founders of a new historic order set foot in the new world, They came with their instrument of government already formed on shipboard, and with them religious and civil democracy landed in the Western Hemisphere. Well may the day of their landing be commemorated by a grateful posterity, and hallowed through ages and to universal man be the rock where first they trod having followed the pilgrims of civil and religious liberty in the prosecution of their high mission to the shores of the new world, we must here leave them. Of their subsequent trials I may not speak, nor how cheerfully those trials were born, nor of the first sad winter when deadly cold and mortal disease looked into their lone huts in the dim wilds, and how there, on beds tended by memories of the past, the distant and the dead, not the strong man only, but frail and delicately nurtured woman and gentle daughters, withering in their first bloom, and childhood with the shadows of a spiritual strength and beauty, almost awful, thrown over it by the solemnity of the time, wrestled with death, with a heroism witnessed only by ministering spirits and chronicled only in the book of life. On this picture, I may not stay to look, nor to consider how mightily thrived the tree of truth and liberty, whose seedling had thus been cast of the wave on this desolate strand HOW IT GREW IN THE WILDERNESS LIKE A THING OF GOD, HOW IT WAS WATERED BY HEROIC BLOOD AND SAINTLY TEARS, AND DREW BLOOM FROM THE SUN AND STRENGTH FROM THE STORM, HOW DEEPLY IT ROOTED, HOW HIGH IT ROSE, HOW WIDE IT SPREAD, TILL THE ENDS OF THE EARTH CAME TO SEEK SHELTER UNDER ITS SHADOW. These themes require not the historic sketch, but the open vision. For monuments of their fidelity to their high mission, we have only to open the eye and behold around us. From a discourse in commemoration of the Pilgrim Fathers, Delivered in the 3rd Presbyterian Church, St. Louis, December 24, 1848, by the Rev. Truman Post.
0: Thank you for joining us this week at the Saybrook Meeting House. We hope you've been blessed by today's podcast. Saybrook Ministries' mission is to provide didactic and devotional content from the Christian faith delivered to the saints, recovered and refined by the Protestant Reformation. Be sure to visit saybrookministries.org for continually updated Christian content designed to inspire and invigorate our imagination and intellect. Join us next week for another journey to the Saybrook Meeting House. Until then, may God bless you.